Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Good morning, gentlemen. It's good to good to be with you guys. And yeah, we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob today. All right, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, shine your light, the light of your word into our hearts today. Open our eyes and our minds to comprehend the nuggets of truth that are contained in these chapters of scripture. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is truth and life and health. It's nourishment for our souls and refreshment to our spirits. Lord, we desire that to study your word through the guidance of your Holy Spirit and to grow in the grace and spiritually mature in our faith. As we study your word this morning, may your name be exalted and lifted up for you alone are worthy of all of our praise. Open our eyes, God, to see your truth. Open our ears to hear your voice. Open our hearts to receive what you have for each one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be looking at the life of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are among the most significant people in the, in the whole Bible. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's not based on their personal character. But it's based on the character of God. I mean, they were wealthy, they were powerful, yet each one of them was capable of lying, deceit, and selfishness. In other words, they were just like us, trying to please God, but often, so often falling short. I broke Jacob's life down into seven acts that I hope to get us through this morning. And I just want to give you a quick overview of those acts. Act number one, we see God's promise to Jacob. Before he's even born, while he's in his mother's womb, God says the older will serve the younger. Before he could do anything, God reveals his plan for Jacob. Act number two is we see that Jacob lives up to his name. His name means heel grasper. And he literally grasps the heel of his brother when he's being born. But then he also grasps his brother's birthright and blessing. And during his flight. So he's forced to run away from home. When he's fleeing, God appears to him, not only to confirm to Jacob his blessing, but he also awakens in Jacob a personal knowledge of himself. And then we get to act three. In the third act, Jacob is experienced life from the other side. He meets his match when he runs into Laban. But there's a curious change that takes place. At one point, you would think he would just totally just leave Laban behind. But we see that he waits another six years because he's waiting for God's permission to return to his homeland. And that brings us to Act 4. In Act 4, Jacob is now in the role of grabber again. But this time, he's by the Jordan River, and he's grabbing God. God changes his name to Israel, which means God contended or wrestles with God, triumphant in God. 
and Jacob can no longer be the self-sufficient, proud individual he was. He will become dependent on God, and God will now fight for him. This is the climax of Jacob's life. Instead of grabbing other people, he's grabbing onto God himself, and he doesn't want to let go. And that brings us to act number five, where Jacob returns to Bethel with a new identity and a zeal to live for God. Then act six, Jacob's sixth stage is a life where he, he was to be grabbed. This time, God achieved a firm grab, a, a hold of him. And in responding to Joseph's, and this kind of gets beyond what we're, our, our scope of study today, but in, in Genesis 46, Joseph invites him to come to Egypt, but he waits for God's permission to go. And then act number seven, you'll have to wait till the end of the presentation to, to see what happens there. Oh, so, so when we're studying Jacob, it should make us ask some questions. Here's some questions that should come to mind. Can you think of times when God made himself known to you? Whether it was through his word or through other people or through life circumstance, do you allow yourself to meet him as you study his word? What difference have those experiences made in your life? And are you more like the young Jacob, forcing God to track you down in the desert of your own plans and mistakes, or are you like the older Jacob, who presented his desires and plans to God for his approval before taking any action. When we're studying the Bible, I think, I think it's important that we should reflect on this. The Bible is full of all kinds of rich images and stories, but they come from a time and a culture that's different from our own. The writers of the Bible are Hebrew or Eastern, and so they're writing from an Eastern perspective. Now, most Christians in our culture are Greek, or Western. And so we think of the world in, in a much different way than the people of the Bible. And as a result, our understanding of the Bible is sometimes lost as we try to explain it through a Western lens. And I just want to share some, some quick examples of this. The Greek mind focuses on individuals, while the Hebrew mind tends to focus on the community. I mean, if you just think about the worship songs that are written in America, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. There, there's so, so many of our songs that we sing. I think we're getting better at this, but our individual in nature. When it comes to words, the Greek mind prefers prose or outlines or lists or bullet points, while the Hebrew mind pre prefers poetry, imagery, symbolism. English has close to a half a million words, but biblical Hebrew has 8,000 words. 8,000 words. Amazingly simple, but deep at the same time. As for numbers, the Greek mind thinks in terms of quantity. We always just think in terms of quantity. I thought about bringing like five oranges and putting them up here. I meant to do that. I forgot. And if you saw that, you would say, oh, there's five oranges. But the Hebrew mind thinks differently when it comes to, to, to numbers. They see symbol. They see quality. So, for example, the story of David and Goliath. How many stones did he pick up? Five. Five smooth stones. Now, to the Hebrew mind, when they read that, you know what they think of? They think of the Torah. 
So here you've got this David, and he's going with the Torah, with God, to take on Goliath. He had five stones. Think about when Jesus fed 5,000 people. He starts with five loaves and two fish. Think of those five loaves. When they saw the five loaves, the Eastern mind would think of the Torah. You know, and what, would, what about the two fish? They might think of, remember how, the ten, they might think of the Ten Commandments because it was written on two tablets. The ten, so anyway, my point is they think of numbers differently than the way we think of numbers. When they think of things like eternal life, we think of it as it starts when our life ends on earth, where the Eastern mindset thinks of it as living in harmony with God now. The Greek mind wants to prove God's existence. I mean, how often are we going to the Bible trying to prove God's existence? But the Hebrew mind, which the authors wrote, assumes the existence of God. It's assumed. To the Greek, truth is rational and scientific, and truth is often static and unchanging. But to the Hebrew, truth is religious or experiential, and this is big, truth is unfolding. So when you read the Old Testament, what we see is that God is unfolding his truth to us. Keep that in mind as we journey through the Old Testament. Okay, let's dive into the book of Genesis. Can I have, uh, let's see, Ray or Big Dan? Ray, you said you're younger than Big Dan? Okay, well, so I'm choosing you because uh, Jacob was the younger. That you so can you read this passage, Genesis 25, 19 to 26? This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan or Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So we learned in Genesis 12 that God says to Abraham that through his family, every generation will have a messianic seed. Because one day, out of that family, one person, one of the descendants will be the Messiah who will conquer sin and death in the world. So in the womb, before Jacob has done anything, God declares that he is that messianic seed. He's going to be the strong nation, even though he's the youngest born. His brother's going to serve him. God makes it very clear that his choices are based on his own sovereign will, not on human merit. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, he said, Though the twins were not yet born and had done anything good or bad, 
So Paul emphasizes that God spoke with respect to the twins before they had done anything. The first one was named Esau because he was red and very hairy, which is what the word Esau means in Hebrew. The second one comes out grasping Esau's heel. So his name is Jacob, which means heel grabber. Let's continue on. Ray, would you continue on, please? The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau his some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Okay, so right away we notice that this family is very dysfunctional. <laughs> I mean, it had so much potential, though, didn't it? I mean, think about it. Isaac was married to one woman. You don't see that much in the Old Testament. There's usually multiple wives involved. They only had two kids, so they could easily just love them both equally. But, of course, we find this extreme form of favoritism. Esau is like an outdoorsman and loved hunting, so he's like a real man's man. So Isaac loves him and prefers him. Where Jacob is indoorsy, <laughs> we would say indoorsy, or you could say intense. I mean, he lived intense. He liked the tents. It's like one of my favorite camping jokes. Camping is so intense. But anyway, Jacob is indoorsy, and but Rebecca prefers him. So you see this incredible favoritism happening. And then we have this interesting exchange that takes place. Esau's animal appetite seemed to rule his life. It wasn't just a matter of hunting because most men would have had to hunt for the meals for their family. But on this occasion, he came home exhausted and hungry and he was about to pass out. And his brother took advantage of the circumstances. Jacob was an opportunist. When his brother comes home starving, he seizes the opportunity to seal Esau's birthright. So what is a birthright? Well, the birthright was the honor given to the firstborn, bestowing kind of a head of household status and the right to inherit the father's estate. The son with the birthright would receive a double portion of whatever was passed down. But that day, Esau chose to fill his belly and forfeited that double portion. And it says he despised his birthright. Big Dan, will you pick up reading the next 10 verses? Genesis 27, 1 through 10. Okay. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food 
I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessings before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessings in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. So we see that Jacob already stole the birthright. Now we're going to see him steal the blessing. So this story is all about the blessing. Well, what is the blessing in the Bible? The blessing is like an accurate spiritual discernment of who a person is, what gifts God has given them, and what they're becoming, what God is making them. The blessing of the firstborn is to have the most powerful person in the clan, the father, looking at you and saying, there's no one like you. I love you more than anybody. You're special. The struggle for blessing is the theme of Jacob's life. And it's a struggle of all human beings. Every human being wants this. We all want other people and ultimately God to speak words of blessing into our lives because we know that words have power to them, especially words of affirmation or, or valuing, but also words of condemning and cursing. Words have power to shape who we are. Let's continue on, Big Dan. Jacob said to Rebecca, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, my son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother. And she prepared some tasty food, just the way his father liked it. Then Rebecca took the best clothes of Esau, her older son, which she had in the house, and put them on her younger son, Jacob. She also covered his hands and smooth parts of his neck with the goatskins. Then she handed to her son, Jacob, the tasty food and the bread she had made. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son. He answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. So here we see Jacob's questioning whether he can really pull this off, but his mother convinces him and equips him with all these different props. And then Jacob dresses up and proceeds with the deception. But before we continue reading, note when Isaac asks him, who is it? Jacob says, I am Esau, your firstborn. He lies here. But we're going to see in the future, in, in, a, in a future part of his life, when he's wrestling with the angel, with God, God asks him the same question. And, and, and he comes clean when God asks him. So we're going to move forward. Let me just summarize what happens here. So Isaac asks him, how did you find it so quickly? How did you find this food so quickly? And it's, he says, the Lord, your God, gave me success. Okay, really? 
I mean, that, where's the lightning bolt from heaven when he says that? He's putting it on God. And then Isaiah says, come near so I can touch you, my son, and see if you're really, really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went close to his father who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, but he proceeded to bless him. And he asked him one more time, are you really my son Esau? I am, he replied. Again, Where's the second lightning bolt right there? Jacob comes near to Isaac and Isaac bless him. And here's the blessing. Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the field that the Lord is blessed. May God give him heaven's dew and earth's riches an abundance of, of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and may those who bless you be blessed. Okay, so what do we learn from this? And, and this morning, I'm gonna be like super practical and jump to like applications for us today. What do we learn from, from this story? from Jacob. We learn that there's a little bit of Jacob in all of us. We learn that every human being wants the blessing of the firstborn. We want other people to say, there's nobody like you. You're special. You're unique. But we often make the mistake that Jacob makes. Tim Keller says this, quote, Jacob is a frightening picture of how most of us try to get the blessing. We dress up as somebody else, somebody that we're not. And for, see, for Jacob to get the blessing, he couldn't be himself. And how many people alive are doing the same thing? We dress up. We don't let people see who we really are. We don't want other people to see our flaws, our fears, our failures. And consider this. At the moment that Jacob got the blessing, Jacob finally got what he wanted from his father. But he's looking at his father's his face and he sees the radiant loving joyful look he got the words from isaac lips that he's always wanted to hear but do you think it helped do you think it actually changed him it didn't change him because he knew that isaac wasn't loving him he knew he was an imposter so how and where do we get the blessing Again, I'm jumping to personal application. We need to get it from God, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes by grace. Jacob was wrong when he said, I'm, your, I'm the firstborn, on, on a couple different levels. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the one true firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the only begotten son from the Father. So what that means is Jesus lived life through all eternity in the state of firstborn blessing. But here's the thing. He left that firstborn blessing. He comes to earth. He dies on the cross. And then Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ dressed up like us and got the curse that we deserve so that when we believe in Jesus, we can be clothed like him. See, that's the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel is that Jesus dressed up 
and got the curse that we deserve so that when we believe in him, he now accepts us and sees us as everything that Jesus has done. Yeah. You know, what's interesting here is you just had us read that when Rebecca is pregnant and she feels this tugging inside of her, she goes to the Lord and asks, and he tells her, he emphatically tells her, the older will serve the younger. But what does she do? She's complicit because she goes to Jacob and encourages him to do what he does and to lie and to steal a blessing. So she doesn't have the confidence that God will fulfill the promise he makes to her. Yeah, she tried to take things in her own hands, which how often do we do that? We run away from God. We feel God is leading us or guiding us, and then we, we try to take things in our circumstances in our own hands. So I'm going to move forward and just summarize a lot, a big, vast portion of Jacob's life. So what happens? Esau comes home and the whole deception is exposed. But Isaac makes it clear to Esau that he can't undo it. So he blessed Jacob and Jacob will be blessed. That Esau begs and weeps. And then it says that Isaac trembled violently. And he says, I blessed your brother and he will be blessed. It's almost as if Isaac at this point is saying, I've been fighting God because I really wanted to give that blessing to Esau. And he realizes at that moment that he can't fight against God. And, and it's interesting to note that God is coming here and he's blessing the most screwed up member of the whole family. But why does he do that? Well, maybe it's because the moral of the story is that God brings his scandalous intervening grace into the lives of people who don't seek it, who don't deserve it, who continually resist it, and who don't even appreciate it after they've been saved by it over and over and over again. That sounds like a lot of us. Then we see the story moves forward. What's the result? So Jacob got this great blessing. The result, Jacob himself, he's been made the head of the clan. He's been given the firstborn blessing. But Jacob goes away penniless. He goes away clanless. You know, when is he going to be able to come back? We don't know. Because we know as long as Esau is alive, he probably won't be able to come back. At this point, his life is falling apart. And that's when God shows up in the next act. Can I have somebody read... Maybe uh, Rex, could you read this? Genesis 28, 10 to 20. He left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. 
Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. That's great. Thanks. So it's important to note here in this story that Jacob is not actively seeking God. And even though his life's falling apart, he's not seeking God. But God, out of his grace, is seeking him. So it's appropriate for us to ask, why does God come to Jacob when he doesn't ask? Why does God come to Jacob when he didn't pray? The answer might be because God is attracted to brokenness. And so in this dream, Jacob sees three things and he hears three things. So what does he see? He sees a stairway. And by the way, we call this Jacob's ladder. It was not a ladder. It was a stairway and it was huge. It was huge. And it's a stairway that starts in heaven and comes all the way down to earth. Then he sees angels on the stairway, showing that God's royal power is on the move. That messengers are going up and messengers are coming down. God is working. And that's one of the, one of the things here is that Jacob, his life is falling apart. And he's probably like, where the heck is God? But God is showing him, I'm working. And how many times in our lives does that happen? We think, where, where are you, God? All this stuff is happening around me. But God is giving him a glimpse. I'm working. I'm moving. I'm doing things. And then he sees the Lord. The Lord descended the stairway and came and stood right over him in a posture of intimacy and nearness. And then Jacob hears three things. He hears God say, I am with you. You know, he was alone. He was friendless at this time. And then he hears God say, I will watch over you wherever you go. At this point, he was penniless. He had no real possessions. And then God says, I will bring you back to this land. He didn't have any wealth. So we see that God is meeting Jacob. And this dream shows us that God's power is on the move. He's out there. He's working. He's everywhere. And yet Jacob has not even asked for God. And it's interesting that God is not at the top of the ladder saying, Jacob, come up here. God comes down to him. And, and that's, that's an interesting picture, right, of the gospel, how God comes down to us. It says that Jacob sees the gate of heaven. What is the gate of heaven? Well, when the narrator gives us this term in Genesis 28, he wants us to think back of a story in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, there was a group of people together, and they were building a tower. Remember, they call it, what did they call it? The Tower of Babel. 
the Tower of Babel. Babel means the gate of heaven or the gate of a god. So the reason Jesus said this is a stairway to heaven. So the difference between these two pictures is the one where the people were building the stairway up to heaven. It was man trying to get up to God. The difference here, it's very clear that God comes down to Jacob. And, and that's a picture of the difference between religion and the gospel. Re religion is us trying to build a, a stairway up to get to God. And every religion tries to do this. But the gospel is that God came down to us. So what a, what a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel we see here. Grace. Grace, exactly. There's another time in scripture that this happens. Remember in John chapter one, when there's this guy named Nathaniel that Jesus comes in contact with? Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, hey, we found the Messiah. And he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And he's like, come and see. And so Nathaniel goes and sees and he meets Jesus. And Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? He says, hey, here's an honest man in whom there's no deceit. And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. When he said, I saw you under the fig tree, something happened in Nathaniel's mind. We have no idea what was happening under the fig tree. But when Jesus said that to Nathaniel, it clicked. And he realized this is not just a normal man. This must be the one. But then Jesus says this. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than this. I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the Son of Man. It's a picture of what, ja what Jacob saw, except there's one difference. The difference is Jesus is the stairway. Jesus is the stairway. That's pretty powerful. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.